drag along trailer things for small uh, um, a weekend in, in centre weekend centre parks is definitely harder work than uh, five days in the Pyrenees <laughs> I can tell you yay <laughs> oh dear yeah, it'll be fun no, we'll be good. Good. Looking forward to good for you and shall we crack on yep yeah uh, as Thin Lizzy once sang the boys are back in the park <laughs> was it Thin Lizzy I think it was <laughs> apologies <laughs> to Thin Lizzy if it wasn't um, welcome everyone episode 7 taking stock after the bell I'm David Henry Joined by James Hughes, investment manager, and Mr. Jonathan Raymond, investment manager. Um, earnings season. Uh, we've been talking for a while about an earnings recession and a, this slow-moving train of a recession coming down the tracks. It just hasn't arrived. Um, per Refinitive, so far, 77% of S&P 500 companies that have reported by their beaten expectations on earnings and 74% have, have beaten on Revenue. Any mm. thoughts? You, norm, you normally get a majority of companies beat, but that beat rate is a little bit higher than normal. Because management yeah. manage expectations yeah, yeah, in yeah. advance. Human mm. nature, right? It's just it's amazing how well margins are holding up still. I mean that's the thing because I think you know we've discussed it a lot. You you, you know I think at this stage companies can pass on revenue increases because of inflationary pressures. But obviously yes. it's, being able to maintain margins is quite a different story. Um, and of course, there are cost pressures at the bottom, whether it's increasing salaries or you know, energy prices being passed on. But I think based on where sell-side analysts and, and a lot of strategists thought earnings were coming in and where the consumer was it's you know it, say it's always the next quarter we're going to see a slowdown again next quarter mm, it's I just know. not it's just not happening I, 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 I think it's that it feels like a slow moving train but actually mm-hmm. just hasn't the, the point on margins I mean if you're looking for a reason one of the reasons that you can be negative is that margins are if not quite at all time highs they're pretty yeah. pretty darn close yeah. the impressive <coughs> element for that and we mentioned this with Meta with James last time is, is the revenue you're beating on revenue mm. you know you can cut cost and protect earnings but the revenue seem to be rolling in now an element of that will be pricing with inflation but it seems to be okay for the time being it does it does but a lot of management commentary in conference calls was quite reasonably cautious but yeah. again this comes back to human nature this comes back to the management be cautious and guide down, and then they end up beating the numbers. That's that's the kind of game that they all play. But obviously, in some quarters, mm. that game is played more than in other quarters. If that makes sense, and and I'm not sure if we come on to it, but you know, Home Depot yesterday, yeah, yesterday or day before, you know, numbers were weak, and management were, we don't know where this is going. Mm. Obviously, Home well, Depot, well, but they don't. And I thought the interesting part of the Home Depot numbers, um, which I had a look at myself this morning, it's the big ticket stuff where you're seeing the sogginess. Yeah. But if you were, you know, going to buy a barbecue, you would have done it two years ago. Exactly. Like, how often exactly. do you need to buy a new so barbecue? We have to be really careful when we're thinking about both the economy from a macro perspective and corporate earnings, is that we're still in the mm. in the end of the bullwhip effect, for want of a phrase, i.e. we bought loads of stuff during the pandemic because we couldn't go out anywhere. Now we're not buying as much stuff, mm. so manufacturing is effectively in recession, and stocks like Home Depot are getting hit. Whereas the airlines and leisure stocks yes, and yes. London restaurants are still absolutely booming. Now, at some point, that comes to an end as well. Mm. But again, when these things come to an end, it looks like a recession, but it might actually just be normalisation. And we don't know where the normalisation is. We don't know if it means a Home Depot's sales 
10% structurally higher than they need to be or you know if you take a sort of pre 2020 trend where are we versus that trend should they be higher or not so there's going to be lots of moving parts it's very difficult to disentangle it's, it's very difficult for sell side analysts now and, and buy side analysts as well but talking to our guys it, it is what is that normalized level mm. of, of demand and, and what's the normalized level of, of manufacturing across different industries but you know, again we had you know, JD Sports this morning, everything looked pretty reasonable. Pretty good. Pretty um, good. Statement was slightly cautious, as you'd expect, exactly yeah. what you just said. Yeah. You know, again, Ex- Experian was, you know, pretty in line. Again, the stock sold off a little bit because of a softer statement. So that's the recurring theme, isn't it? You've actually, the numbers are in line with, with what the market expects. It's just the outlook statements are, are still slightly cautious. Yeah, but yeah. to be honest, if you had a CEO at this stage saying, actually, we're super excited about the next quarter and you know next six months, next nine months, everyone would go, well, yeah. that's a very odd <coughs> statement. Yeah. So they can't there's do no, anything. There's, there's, no up, there's no upside for management to be no. bullish at this stage. Because if they get, because everybody seems to think we're going into a recession and we've talked about it ad nauseum. So if we do go into a recession, it will be you know one of the most telegraphed recessions in history. So if you're a chief exec yeah. and a finance director and you're it's talking a bullish game now and yeah. you get it wrong, you're you're you you're are done. done. You are done. So it's human nature. It comes back to this kind of expectations game a bit. But I yeah. totally agree with James. Things seem okay, but you know a bit of cautious guidance. Yeah, hundred percent. falling off a cliff. Just so again, yet. we should probably probably make it clear for you know people listening to this that I guess the stocks we're looking at are are the very big quality names and there there is an element of corporate Darwinism when things get more difficult anyway that some of the names we invest in will take market share so yes revenues will grow but they're just taking market share of, of where they're operating yeah. so you know we are looking towards the larger quality end you, you've had some you have had some bigger wobbles and smaller mid-cap. Um, and, and cyclicals. Yeah, and I think you know, we, we've talked about this as well in, in terms of there's a lot of value around in smaller mid-caps. Some names have sold off, I think, you know, much further than they should have done because a competitor in the same space has, has had more numbers. Obviously, they're far more fragile businesses than the larger names we look at. Um, but certainly, in our space, it seems, I think, where we were this time last year, we had almost expected the recession to be, you know, we're probably almost saying we'd be majority through the recession. We yeah. hadn't even started. No. Um, if there is good news, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by that on an almost um, yeah. daily basis, but these things are slow moving and we've got used to economic mm. cycles that are very, very fast. Maybe it's a recency bias and yeah. we expect yeah. something a bit quicker, but it's, it certainly feels a bit slower. Just on the expectations management, I think it's interesting here, the first chart that we're looking at. Um, which is analyst revisions that actually those have started to tick up now again as a whole. Now there is, as you would expect, discrepancy by sector there, as we as we can see. Um, I mean, analysts, it's a tough old job, right? But probably a little bit behind the curve most of the oh, time. Normally, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then I think if you ask most decent analysts, they'd probably agree that, you know, um, what their estimate for this year's earnings is probably doesn't make a massive difference to what their thesis is on a stock, for instance. So, you know, these are useful aggregate numbers to see where where people expect earnings to be. But it's interesting that we've gone through a whole kind of twelve to fifteen month period where revisions 
have been negative, i.e. analysts have been reducing their forecast mm. for earnings and it's just turned positive. Generally speaking, markets go through difficult times when revisions are negative and markets tend to do quite well when revisions are positive. So it's kind of bullish in a way, but mm. we've still not, from a headline level, we've not seen a massive downgrade to earnings, i.e. if we get a recession, a normal recession, I'm not, I'm not, there is no such thing as normal recession, but something that doesn't look like 2008, for instance, mm. then earnings ultimately will come down. It's just a case of by how much, so whether it's 10% or 20% or yeah. 30%. Um, so if we still get that outcome, then earnings estimates are earnings are too high. Mm. For sure. Nothing tests an investment thesis like a recession. And we're about to find out, I think we're about to find mm. out which companies <coughs> actually have pricing power. Yep, totally. I don't know. It's you know, I know the UK is a, is a small part of the world in terms of global index or indices, but you know the Bank of England just got it completely wrong on on, on GDP growth, and it, it's you know if you look at that, you know there might not be a UK recession. Is there a, so do we need them to make a projection on GDP? I'm going to stick up for the Bank of England. So for the first time ever. <laughs> so in October last year, post the Quarteng budget, they came out and said GDP growth is going to be negative and we're going to have a really bad recession lasting mm. five quarters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were totally wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, how did they come up with that estimate in the first place or that forecast in the first place? It was because at the time, UK natural gas prices were four times higher than they are today. Four times higher. Since, i.e., since they made that forecast, natural gas prices have fallen by 75%. Mm. So you take that into consideration when looking at households and businesses' budgets, and you get from minus 2% GDP to plus 1%. And it's really not rocket science. Now, it's not the Bank of England's job to forecast where they think that natural gas prices go. If you'd look at a chart in October of natural gas prices, you would probably have thought, well, it spiked post-Ukraine with some problems over the summer. It spiked again in September, and it was coming back down. It's likely that gas prices will come down. Yeah. But the Bank of England can't assume that gas prices are going to fall. That's not their job. Their job is to take the price as it is, as it is and use that for their forecast. So before all the uh, so-called we're sick and tired of experts um, brigade come out in force, it was entirely plausible that that's what the Bank of England's forecast was at that moment in time. And because things change, when the facts change, I change my mind, they've changed their mind. But, but the facts did change some time ago. They're very late to the party in terms of... Yeah, they, they only update their forecasts every quarter or every inflation quarter. But, but then, going back to today's point, do they need to make GDP forecasts? I think the last thing, the fewer things they're asked to forecast, the better. Oh, well, generally, yes, because... Generally, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're quite bad at making this, this comes back to earnings things. estimates, isn't it? It's yeah. all a bit, little bit kind of pointless. But we all need to have some sort of of yardstick as to where we think we might be going and then work around that on a sort of scenario. Yeah, that's basis. true. Yeah. That's my, yeah. my view. That's fair. Um, just because we're on the Bank of England, we'll, we'll stick with it. Um, natural gas, it's it's a point I wanted to, to make as well. Um, we are, as a country, quite exposed to higher gas prices because we have more gas boilers in the average home. Yep. Um, and we have to import it primarily from, from our friends in Europe, I think. Um, that is now starting to come out of the numbers. So when you look at this inflation trends, um, so blue line is goods inflation, green line is services inflation, and orange is the headline you'd expect. Well, the estimation is that that orange line and the goods inflation is gonna come down really, really quickly, not least because of the natural gas coming out of it. Um, 
other than other than imports, it seems it's been more difficult to get rid of inflation in the UK than, than elsewhere in the world. Do we have any thoughts on why that is the case? Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on the point about how we've been billed for our energy over the last 12, 18 months. That has had a material <coughs> impact on the headline CPI figure, which begins to drop out from next month because July, I think, is another kind of staging post in the energy price guarantee or the energy price... Um, what's it called? I can't remember what it's called. The way we set our energy bills. Tariff, isn't it? The, the tariff, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's dropping out again in July and again in September. So you get these kind of big step changes. Um, that's part of the reason. But I also think... Uh, I don't know, actually. Um, gas prices is the only only thing that I can think would be different between us and, and, and I mean, Europe. I would have thought there's an element of currency playing into it. I know sterling has strengthened quite a lot recently, but we're massive importers, aren't we? I'm sure. Currency, and we've had a lot of we've imported. Leave. Yeah, we've imported a lot of currency um, over that period. You know, there was we went for our parity against the dollar, weren't we? So that would have had big element, a, a big impact initially. And again, as you say, migration. Uh, you know, they, we have to import resources and we've exported a lot of working yeah. age people. Um, it's just a fact. So, you know, we have, I, I think during COVID, maybe it's demographics in the UK, I don't know, to be honest with you, but mm. there feels like there was a lot of people that dropped out of the workforce. Um, <coughs> yes, so there was some labour market data yesterday. Um, the it's proportion not great, of, was it? No, it was okay. The, the so the good news is that the proportion of 16 to 64-year-olds, i.e. prime age mm. employment, uh, the proportion of those that population who are working has gone up, and the proportion who are inactive has mm. come down. Now, people who are inactive are either sick or students is the second mm. biggest category of people in that cap. And right. because of COVID, the number of students has gone up because yeah. people have now re-enrolled to university when they wouldn't have done during the pandemic. But also we've got a long-term chronic sickness problem in the UK. Some of it can be attributed to long COVID. Mm. <clears throat> Part of it can be attributed to the fact that the NHS is struggling to Keep treat up. people yeah. and get people through the system post-pandemic. So we have, a, we have a particular sickness problem in the UK and that came out of the data yesterday, albeit those numbers are falling mm. at a reasonable pace. So we are beginning to see yeah. a normalisation, but it just takes time. So if you look at, you know, every country, so both the euro area, the US and the UK, the three of them have all got labour market shortages, mm. but for different reasons. And the UK's reasons is too many people yeah. economically inactive because of sick. <clears throat> and that's different to what it is in the US. Yeah, we've got, there's, there's a bunch of idiosyncrasies. I mean, this chart shows you, the Bank of England want this chart down, don't they? Down, basically, we need to see some softness and softness in the job market. Um, this was, I think, an interesting one. So this is CPI, but annualising the three-month figure. Okay, yeah. So we've seen more of a drawdown there, and that suggests we're sitting around 6% now. That's a little bit stale now, but... I think consensus is for inflation to come down pretty quickly in the UK, and, and if it doesn't, then then perhaps the BOE are in, in a wee bit of a bind. Um, we mentioned price and power. Let's touch on this. Uh, Apple is an absolute monster, uh, reported <laughs> last week. Market cap is, that's John, bigger than the UK entire UK market. So Apple is now worth more than the entire UK stock market, and it's worth about £2.17 billion. Um, 
as the red line here for Apple shows versus the sorry the blue line is Apple and the uh, the red line is is the UK and you can see that Apple ten years ago was worth about three hundred billion pounds so it's gone up by a factor of seven or eight in the last yeah. ten years and the UK market has gone up by what ten percent probably fifteen percent maybe yeah, yeah. in that yeah. time. So um, Apple is also worth more than the, the Russell 2000, which is an index of, the t of 2,000 US smaller companies, and is also bigger than the entire Toronto Stock Exchange, I found out this morning. So <laughs> Google um, thinks that Apple is bigger than. Bigger than. It's, um, <laughs> it's great. Um, um, Best company ever? Well, Microsoft isn't far behind, so I think Microsoft is pretty close to these numbers as well. Uh, yeah, because they're dominant, and as Warren Buffett once said, if you are offered $10,000 never to use an Apple product again, would you take it? And for a lot of people, they would probably say no. I will stick with my Apple products. Yeah. So you talk about moats and you talk about brand and you talk about mm. intangible value. It's probably, the, probably got the most. I, I, I think AirPods are the best consumer purchase I've ever made. I've not had my AirPods for a week and I feel totally lost. <laughs> Completely they're, lost. They're, they're just, this is going to sound ridiculous, they just really work. It's funny because when I first saw them, and it was people getting on the train, typically at Clapham, I think. Where, where do you live, Dave? <laughs> no, I meant so, I meant. <laughs> but, but, but I saw people, you know, you see people with these little white pods in their ears, and I just thought, this this is ridiculous. I'm, why would I want them? I'll lose he's, them. He's oh, the middle aged man. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I, I saw a great meme the other day, Suburban Dad, and oh, it, yeah, is, yeah. it is. That's a, vibe, that's a vibe, isn't so it? Is. Bad. It's so bad. But it, it, I, I looked at this meme of this guy, you know, zip up Chilet and um, probably you know, much like what today. Yeah, Trinity Chain is Chinos, Chinos, AirPods. And I was like, oh my God, it's Jonathan Raymond. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> thanks very much. Um, yeah, suburban so, dad. <laughs> um, Apple, totally dominant. Things exist today that are dominant in our lives that didn't exist only 20 years ago. So I'm sort of... You know, Never say never. It's difficult to see how Apple becomes less dominant. But, but it always is. Like Nifty Fifty. Oh yeah, yeah. Era, you could. What was it? What the Nifty Nifty Fifty stocks? I mean, the one that people always pull out is Kodak. Kodak, yeah. which mm. obviously got you know innovated away. Um, Coca Cola was in Coke the Nifty still Fifty. Around. IBM is still around, albeit with a shadow of its former self. Coke, Coke, Apple, two Buffett stocks. Yeah. Coke isn't. Coke is still, still around. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's difficult to see what I mean. They're just so innovative, aren't they? Um, I've got my contracts coming up for renewal, and you, know, you can look at the Google phone or I guess a Samsung or whatever else. Or it's just Apple, you know, the iPhone, which is what you use. It syncs with all your devices, and it's already in there. Am I going to change and use another another mobile phone? No, probably not. They just look, they look really good and they work and um, yeah absolutely uh, what a beast um, this is a story that rolls around every once in a while uh, US debt ceiling um, so the one year CDS which is a credit default swap which is the cost of insuring against a default from the US government is now very very high indeed relative to recent history there was other spikes that you can see there 2009 global financial crisis obviously 2011 2012 2014 i think and maybe i'm misremembering but i'm pretty sure those were the last times that the debt ceiling 
issue was was on the table. Um, is this something to be worried about? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, no, no. I, I just I don't see what. I mean, this looks ridiculous to me. I mean, you compare it to two thousand and nine, when the, the, you know there was a genuine financial crisis and and genuine concerns over the viability of the financial system, and you compare to where the CDS spread is today, and it just looks completely out of sync. But I, I know my man on the left. It's deeply it's deeply unlikely that the politicians will let the US get to the stage of technical default. So the CDS chart here is obviously very high. What it, Dave's absolutely right, it, it's the cost of insuring against default, not the probability of default. That's a very important really distinction. So it's a bit like insurance. We all take out insurance for our house mm. because, just in case, we don't, act, just because we pay a couple hundred quid a year for it doesn't actually mean we think that that's the probability mm. of our house burning down. And it's the same thing. Now, the, the problem is not necessarily with default per se. The problem is with the shutdown process. So if you think of a business or a household bank account, it has you know, some money in it, and it has outgoings, mm. and, it, and it has incomings. So if the US government is running a deficit, which means that its outgoings are higher than its revenues. So if the government can't raise the balance via issuing debt, which is what they're doing at the moment, then their bank account diminishes as the outflows continue until they've got nothing left. So basically, the U.S. Treasury account, and it's called the uh, name totally, the Treasury General account, I think it's called literally, um, will start to run out at some point, end of May, end of June. Mm. But obviously, the Treasury Secretary Yellen has got options. I.e., she can stop paying people, she can lay people off, she can cut contracts. So there is like the the the, the worry and the risk is that it gets so close to the actual default date that she has to enact special measures. Mm. On reducing spending, which basically means not paying staff, and yeah. you know, if you think of the UK, what is it? Probably twenty-five percent of US employment is public in some sort of way. Right? I think um, it's more. I think it's like forty percent. I think. So, yeah. now those people don't get paid. And that's basically no. what it means as as the cash runs out. Did, I mean, did we have this before? <coughs> in did, 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 was there wasn't there a delay in teachers yeah. and and, and yeah, nurses were, being paid in the US? Yeah, oh, a couple of weeks or something, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. The debt ceiling has yeah. been raised, extended or revised 78 times since 1960. Well, I mean, mm. the we have been, been done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole yeah, thing is yeah. pointless. I, I've been getting calls on it though, because yeah. it is something that rears its head. It yeah. feels like every every couple of years, mm. and you never want to sound like complacent, of course, but I don't think anybody has any real interest in seeing the world burn no. necessarily. We've been down this road before. And we've come out the other side plenty of times. There is a playbook here. Um, but you can never discount the possibility, I suppose. The other thing I think it's worth mentioning mm. as well, I mean, because of rates going up, the US is now spending more on servicing debt annually than their entire, entire defence budget. Yeah. yeah. Rates are coming down. Well, we're incentivised to get rates down. If inflation gets under control, then they're going to cut. Yeah. Well, if you... So if, if the US debt default or worries of debt default cause the slowing in the macro economy because people don't get paid and contracts get postponed, on top of the pressures that we've already talked about in the economy, and you have something resembling a recession, then both inflation comes down and rates come down. So, that, okay, the deficit widens because that's what happens when you get a recession. Um, your spending goes up and your receipts go down. But in a way, for the US government, you're absolutely right, Dave, 
all the US debt, the term structure, which is a very fancy name of saying the um, the duration of US debt is very short dated. It's very very mm -hmm. so most of the bonds in issue are short dated. US issues a lot Why of is debt. That? Uh, it's just the way they've always done it. Total opposite in the UK. UK has got a relatively long yeah, debt maturity, yeah. which is both good and bad. Um, uh, but that's always the way they've done it. Despite there being quite a lot of demand for 10 and 30 year bonds in the US, they don't seem to issue a lot. There seems to be no. one bill, I mean, short dated bill. Why didn't they issue a bunch years? of long dated debt like three years ago? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously too thick to contribute, but yeah. like that, that to me would seem like a, just a total no brainer. Well, it looks like a no brainer now, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, it does a bit, but well, hindsight's twenty twenty, yeah. I guess. Maybe yeah, you're right. Rates are literally zero. Yeah. I mean, Buffett didn't Berkshire borrow a billion dollars at zero percent? Mm, something stupid. Um, I think in like March twenty, April twenty four, or early April twenty. Remember that? Mm. Um, well, it's, it's akin to Hughesy doing his mortgage eighteen months ago on a one percent five year fixed rate. <laughs> the man's timing is impeccable. Um, just, just, just on housing, I picked special advisor. <laughs> just on, uh, just on housing. While we're on it, um, this caught my eye. Uh, so, UK rental market, it's now um, on average a thousand pounds a month uh, to rent on average outside of London. Uh, that excludes London. Rental costs are up twenty five percent on average from the beginning of the pandemic, according to Hamptons. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons for this, uh, but not least rising <coughs> costs for landlords, as we've discussed mm. before, interest rates going up, less favourable tax treatment. Um, yeah, it's not a great time to be a renter, as you know, as the executive. It's not, it's, and, it, and it's not a great time to be a landlord no. either. Because I was about to say the same thing, you, uh, which you, means that something's not right. No. You know, the market is the system's not working for no. either party. Nope. You've got these energy certificates coming in, haven't you? Where yeah. there's a change in. Well, I haven't even mentioned that. In the no, I mean there's a change in change in law where everything's going to have to be updated. It's, it's costing landlords a lot of money, either on repairs or just certificates that need to be put together. Um, as you say, we, we hear this from clients a lot. They've all got to spend some money to get their energy efficiency yeah. up to is it C or B rating yeah. on the yeah. EPC? Yeah. I think that was, another thing, that was another thing about lands yeah. and outside resources and inflation in the UK as well. The mm. average home in Europe is much better insulated than the UK. Mm. Now I live in a Victorian building, it's pretty drafty. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of us are exactly the same. Duct tape over the over the open fire still. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my track record with DIY is pretty appalling, mate. So uh, I just get people to sort that out, please. But um, you know, I, it doesn't seem to be working. And we had Michael Gove yesterday, I think, announced the the government renters reform bill. Um, you know, there's some safeguards in there for tenants, which mm -hmm. are really important. But you know, for landlords, I guess that pretty makes the whole thing even even less appealing. I guess. Well, the Michael Gove thing's interesting because he's his. Um, He's Secretary of State for Departments. Uh, anyway, he covers housing. So, as we've just discussed, the market's broken because we, well, we haven't discussed it, but because basically there's a shortage of properties all around for both buyers yes. and for renters. And so, as one of his own MPs um, commented on Twitter, if only Michael Gove knew something, someone who could do something about this, with the implication <laughs> that it's in his brief Perfect. to get house building going, yeah. and it starts with the planning rules. And that it's not everyone's cup of tea. You know, I live in and around near Wokingham, which looks like a giant building site. Mm. And you sort of drive around and you think, what, what's going on here? Mm. But still, we are structurally shorter houses. But as soon as there's a planning application in your local village or your local town, the whole town rally around and are up in arms. And that's, that's, that's what happened. That's, that's self-preservation. That's natural human behavior. So we can't, you know, can't judge that. But so I need to change. It, it, it does. I mean, 
James and I discussed it last time, but I'm interested in your thoughts. 100% mortgages. Thoughts? We played. We've played that game before, haven't we? I don't. I don't think that's the answer. And it's probably not the answer. No, no. But it's it's an answer um, in the very short term for a very small cohort of people. And it's probably a better answer than help to buy has been for many people over the last mm. five years. Yeah. Why do you think that? Um, because we've not probably not seen the growth in equity in the long run. It's not fair. Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But there is a very small subsection of people who a 100% mortgage might work for. Mm. Yeah, just generally, you know, as I said last time, I don't, I don't hate the idea. Um, but as ever, there's probably not going on in terms of consequences. And James's point was, you know, credit supply actually probably drives up the cost of houses. But given it's just one building society skeptical at the minute, I think probably the impact in the, in, in the near term is pretty limited. I mean, the, the overall answer is to, you know, the, or the, the, the answer for lots is just more affordable rents. But again, that's, that's a policy decision. And, you know, is the answer you make it more favourable for landlords again to own? You know, do you yeah. have the, you know, it wasn't that long ago where you could offset the financing cost of your mortgage against yes. the rent coming in. Um, you know, I think arguably that probably, yeah, I think arguably that keeps rents low. I think every conversation every renter's going to have with their landlord is not about the rental costs going downwards, it's it's how much is it going up by. Um, yeah. You know, ultimately everyone's, not everyone, but I think the large majority have had some sort of pay rise um, or, or will be receiving some sort of pay rise because of inflation and, and landlords just push it on, don't they? So we, and, and to be honest, because it's so... It's so unattractive to be a landlord. I don't. I don't blame them for doing it. But you know, over a thousand pounds a month in rent is a lot of money. Outside of London. Outside of London, exactly. Yeah. Um. Where did you first move? Where did you first rent when you were down in London? Uh, in Stockwell. Were you? Yeah, Just with a friend. friend me. Yeah, exactly. What about you, JR? Well, I was actually told. It's a funny story, actually. My, one of my closest friends, and he. Um, he told me he bought a flat in, in Clapham, and when I turned up, it was definitely not Clapham, it was definitely <laughs> Stockholm. <laughs> At the end of the very long road, I think it was Clapham uh, Old Town, but it was about a mile away. Clapham, so. Clapham ran, presumably, as well. Of course. <laughs> He's a banker, so. Yeah, absolutely. Good man. I was in Clapham Junction, uh, right by the station, above the party shop on the second floor. Oh, uh, you? Party balloon shop. I have yeah, spent yeah, a lot of money classic. in that party you, balloon uh, shop. Well, yeah, not I moved out three months before the uh, 2011 riots, which took place in I and around the junction. That. That's right. Yeah, so I was living in Stockwell at the time. Yeah, good times. Yeah. There we are. Where was your first place? Inside Inferno's. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Really? Um, so, final thing. Let's move on. Final thing. Um, I thought this was. I thought this was really neat. AQR have put out a, a paper on diversification. Uh, which I came across from Meb Faber's Idea Farm newsletter, which I would really recommend if, if that is your bag. Um, there's a couple of great quotes in here, uh, mm. just when you're thinking about diversification. Um, a diversified portfolio that you hold today might look completely sensible tomorrow. It will look full of mistakes. After the fact, that portfolio will almost always have lots of positions that have underperformed. Um, I think this is an underrated aspect of portfolio management that clients yeah. don't necessarily get. Yeah. I think it's I think it's very I think if clients saw just the end figure of a portfolio and the performance associated with it versus benchmark, I think it would be a lot easier. I'm often quite um, 
jealous of fund managers that just have a unit price because within our portfolios you can obviously see every single line and I think it's just natural for most clients to look at what's gone wrong or the, the negatives in the portfolio and to focus on that and to, and to think, you know, and, and the, the comment is often received, well, why don't we sell the losers? And, you know, that's not, that's not a bad comment to make because, you know, there's lots of good way of running a, a portfolio of, of, um, of equities is, is to, you know, is to cut the bad companies that aren't doing what they, what they should be or, or what the, the quote is. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go in your nice rose garden. You wouldn't um, cut down the roses and encourage the weeds to grow. Um, but we run our portfolios in quite a different way. You know, there are natural. You know, there are hedges in there. There are different types of fund structures for reasons. Um, but it, you know, for the portfolio to grow over time, there's always got to be an element that underperforms versus the other part of it that outperforms. Um, I'm not sure I've explained that very well, but well, there's um, two, just two, two ways of looking at it, right? Because there is some academic evidence that suggests that momentum wins. What does that mean? I.e. the things that are doing well today do well tomorrow, and the things that are losing today lose tomorrow. Mm. And that, that would argue for a strategy of selling your losers and buying more of your winners. Yeah. However, there is occasionally some pretty savage mean reversion, and we're talking about growth versus value a lot here. And we might have a late addition to the chart pack, which I've just pulled up, but mm. if you look at a chart of Amazon against Shell, from the 1st of January 2020, pre-COVID, by the end of 2020, Shell was down 60%, and Amazon had doubled up 100%. And if you go through the 2021 period, Amazon's still flying high and Shell starts to recover. And if you look to today, in the last 12 to 15 months, Shell has clawed back all those losses and Amazon has halved again. So today, they stand at exactly the same place as they stood pre-pandemic. That's unbelievable. And that, that comes back to would argue that if you owned just Amazon during the pandemic, you'd have been yeah. doing great and you didn't want to buy any shell. Mm. And today, it's the polar opposite. So there is an element of mean reversion. And yeah. that's why we have to carry on owning things that aren't always doing well today, yeah. because tomorrow might look different, and often does. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, diversification <coughs> isn't perfect because it always means you're going to have to sit in front of a client and the eye is drawn, as you say, Hughesy, to the mm. things that maybe haven't mm. done so well during 2020, why on earth would we hold an oil company, for example? Yeah. Um, but the alternative is, for the vast majority of people who aren't total psychopaths, pretty hard to live through because you're just putting it all on black. Like Amazon, you know, you put, you know, invested at Amazon and float, and you've hold, held it all that time. You've done, you are fabulously, fabulously, fabulously wealthy, but you have had the sit through periods where the stock is down 90, 90%. 90%. Can you do that as the pound amounts get bigger? No. As I say, unless you're a robot, mm. I think you'll struggle to do that. And so if that isn't an option for you, putting it all on black, then diversification is mm. a sensible yeah. alternative. Yeah, and eggs and baskets. I mean, I, I pull this chart up a lot in client meetings mm. to kind of, A, show the madness of the last three, four years mm. between the mm. dichotomy mm. between performance of these areas of the market, but also to try and ram home the point that just occasionally we have things that aren't working for us. And whether at the moment that's Asia and emerging markets, Japan has been in the doldrums for years. However, yeah. it's had a really, really good month or six yeah, weeks yeah. in terms of performance. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, where's that coming from? Might just be coming to life because- Europe. Europe, well, Europe's a classic case. It's one of the best performing markets since October, yeah. having been dire for 10 years. So- I mean, this time, not to live with the point, no, we've discussed it, this time last year, Europe's a basket case, 
there's a war going on, we're entirely dependent on gas from Russia, Europe is uninvestable, surprise, surprise, it's the best performing market, one of the best performing markets globally over the last 12 months. But it, it goes back to, you know, it goes back to sort of our investment philosophy of, of we own, or we try to own the best companies within each region and within each sector. And it, it's yeah. very hard to, you know, and you're, unless you're a specialist sector fund, you know, whether you're a tech fund or a healthcare fund or whatever else, I mean, in lots of ways it's easier to run those funds because you don't have to make a decision on, on the macro or, or on a sector, but it's impossible to, to choose which sectors are going to perform the best over certain periods of time, and that's why our investment philosophy, as I just said, is to own, try to own the best stocks in each sector and the best stocks in each region, and it's, it's, it's you know, it. You know, if we were that smart at doing it, we'd be running the best hedge fund in the world. But ultimately, it's impossible to do. And, and over the long term, our investment philosophy does work. Um, and, and it protects clients. It also takes out volatility as well. It's, it's um, about, it, there's, there's two elements. One, get the returns that you need. Two, stay on the journey. Yeah. And diversification helps yeah. you stay on yeah. the journey. Diversification yeah. and discipline are the two words I... And discipline is the key one. It's all too easy to look at a portfolio and to look at the scars, I think. And it'd be lovely to remove those scars because it's just human nature. That is. You know, oh, that one's done great. Why don't we buy more of that one? Or, or you know, and that's the conversation we often have with clients. But it's often, as we know, the you know, if you if, if you're looking at ten U.S. fund managers, the fund manager that's fourth quartile or first quartile, I'd have a very good bet that most of the time, if you put a year forward, the fourth quartile will suddenly be first or second quartile, and vice versa with the first quartile. It's you know, we we have a blend for a reason. The three Ds that every portfolio needs needs diversification, discipline, decra pharmaceuticals. Decra pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Not investment advice. Very good, um, Very good David. That was good. You pulled pets. that out of your hat. Do you yeah. like pets? <laughs> you can't let your wee dog die. <laughs> right, right. Um, just on the diversification thing, I thought I thought this was I thought it was really silly because you you charts are charts and they're they're lines on a screen, right? But you don't see the emotional pain. Uh, this is another quote from the, the AQR paper. Many people have only a limited capacity to take pain and lack the energy to defend a concept that's underperformed for decades from those two levels up in the organization. But as a professional investor, this is the job, no pain, no premium. I think this is, I have a really simplistic idea of why the value factor works and it's behavioral and it goes through very, very long periods of not working. I, I think this is the hardest bit about our job. It's it's sitting in front of someone and you know defending something that has consistently not worked despite it looking ridiculously cheap on evaluation or, or just a strategy that hasn't worked yeah. for a certain amount of time and it's it's you know ultimately I think lots of people get tired of defending something. It's easier to remove. It's it's easier to remove that scar. But I think to be a successful investment manager fund manager in our profession you have to you have to be able to take that pain and, and, and stick to you know stick to the work you've done and remember the reason you bought it in the first place it's very different if you bought it for a reason and and you know that reason has changed or something in the company has changed mm. or something in the strategy you know the fund manager has changed his strategy then that's different but ultimately if the reason or the rationale for owning that is the same now as it was two years ago just because the price hasn't done what you've wanted it to 
you don't sell it on that basis. No, no. and that comes and back to the another D, dogma. You can't be dogmatic. You have to be you know, strong views loosely held, I think, is the phrase. Mm. I mean, don't you know. die, pragmatist, prosper. There we go, there we go. Mm. So, you know, we, you have to be disciplined, and yes, we have to be diversified, um, but we definitely can't be dogmatic about things. No. And you're, James is absolutely right, it's very difficult. <coughs> I think we've got our title for this week's episode. Oh. Um, James, thanks very much. That was brilliant. Good to have the gang back. Oh, it's great. I've missed it. Yeah, we'll we'll be back in a couple of weeks, folks. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Um, see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, in the meantime, as ever, hit me up with any questions. David.henry at culturechaviot.com. Thank you. <laughs>